So we talked about proteins, we talked about fats, now let's talk about carbohydrates. What's the medical importance? Well, carbohydrates are a major component for energy metabolism and they provide glucose, which we can store. This is very nice. We have glycogen stores in the liver or glycogen stores in the muscle, and we can use those uh, when we are not eating. A high-carbohydrate diet, but can also have a negative effect, as I'm just, it, it's going already a little bit ahead for next semester, but I want you to know what the function of the liver is after a carbohydrate-rich meal. The high carbohydrate levels, and, and you pick up the glucose, it goes first to the liver. The liver is supposed to trap all the glucose and the other carbohydrates inside. The liver still doesn't make a good enough job, and we have a spike in blood glucose level. That leads to a spike of insulin. And insulin then tells the liver, hey, your job is to keep to prevent a rise of blood glucose level after a meal, but you are not doing a good job, so do a better job. Okay, liver says, okay, I, have, I can make glycogen, put it in there, and if the blood glucose level is then still high, insulin comes back and says, hey, good try, good try, but not good enough. And then the liver is really in problems, it does glycolysis, does the TCA cycle, and then has the great idea, I can synthesize fatty acids. And I put them into, uh, into VLDL, into lipoprotein, and send them off to the fat cells for storage. So that is how the sugars can end up on your hips. Fat cells, right? So we can have increased tags in fat cells after a carbohydrate-rich meal. Not only after a meal with a high amount of fat. Carbohydrates can do the same thing. Now here carbohydrates, and you should take less of refined sugar, donuts definitely, also trans fats in there. And a diet rich in sugar can lead to obesity and diabetes. And what is now in, in medical um, thoughts more and more is the glycemic index. More and more it should be a low glycemic index. As that has a little change in blood glucose levels after a meal and results in a lower production of insulin. What is also not good in, uh, in food is high fructose corn syrup. And there are a lot of studies on that, but it is only now so far that we don't know exactly what it is, as fructose is differently handled than glucose. But we know that there could be a problem, and the general recommendation from the nutritionist is take it low. High fructose corn syrup may be harmful. Now, what are dietary carbohydrates? We have monosaccharides, mainly glucose and fructose. And if we eat fructose from uh, fruit sugar, um, fructose is perceived sweeter than glucose. So there was a study, individuals got 
glucose as free molecule or fructose as free molecule, and they found fructose so much sweeter. And fructose is abundant in fruits and honey. Then we have disaccharides, and you should know sucrose is cleaved in glucose and fructose. Sucrose is the table sugar, the refined sugar that uh, should be reduced in the diet. Lactose is glucose and galactose, the milk sugar found in uh, breast milk. Maltose is two glucose linked to each other and referred to as melt sugar. And then we have the polysaccharides. Starch is abundant and in plants plus fiber. So like in, in a potato, you have a lot of starch, but not much fiber. But in other um, food sources, you might have starch together with fiber. Then that is better. And glycogen is found as an animal source of food, muscle and liver. So what is now the glycemic response and the index? If you have a dietary carbohydrate that leads to a blood glucose level, and that is seen as glycemic response, no matter how good the liver tries to not leave it to a spike, it will spike. And the glycemic index is a relative ranking of carbohydrates in foods, how they affect the blood glucose levels. And now let's look at the glycemic index. It is defined as the area here under the positive blood glucose response curve after a standard amount of a carbohydrate is eaten. So what does it mean? So we have a control, and mostly it is 50 grams of glucose. And here you have no control. You have high glycemic index and low glycemic index. If you have the control, you measure how the blood glucose level spike after, after you eat. And then the individual is, gets later um, food that we want to investigate. How is the glycemic index? And then we will measure that curve again. And so you can have some food that has a low glycemic index and some have a high glycemic index. The response to glucose is mostly set as 100. Yeah? So you have a curve, and that is 100, and then you see how the others come close to that. And if they come pretty close to the glucose, then they have a high glycemic index. If they are more lower down there, then they have a low glycemic index. Now, that would be nice if everybody would do that. And I said glucose is set as 100. But some other uh, laboratories do it differently. They said, no, I don't want to use glucose. I want to use white bread. And they use white bread and set that as 100. And in that system, glucose has the value of 143. So when you see a glycemic index, look, look it up. In most cases, it is now glucose. But white bread can be done, and it varies even the composition of the white bread. Yeah? So just wanted you to realize what the glycemic index describes. Whenever you have fiber in the diet in that 
uh, food that you eat, that brings the glycemic index down. So low glycemic index food, you have a slow increase of blood glucose, they have a low maximum effect, and they sustain blood glucose levels longer, less fluctuation of insulin release. And if you have a diet with low glycemic index, that improves the blood glucose control in diabetic patients. So in the diabetic patients, you want to put them on a low glycemic diet. And also this leads to increased feeling of satisfaction after a meal, satiety, and you might help an overweight individual by changing the diet to a low glycemic index diet as then they feel full and happy and don't have to eat more. That can help in overweight or obese individuals. And definitely dietary fiber reduces the glycemic response. Are you with me so far? So it has to be, when you look at the glycemic index, in most cases it, it tells you what is used as control. And again, in most cases it's 50 grams of glucose. So what is now this high fructose corn syrup, HFCS? And it's a mixture of pure corn syrup, which is 100% glucose, with fructose to produce a sweeter tasting corn syrup. So you change that and you have um, free glucose and free fructose in this uh, high fructose corn syrup. And the special one is HFCS55, contains here in, in number B shown 55% fructose and 42% glucose. So on purpose, we make um, um, food that tastes sweeter. But again, we don't really know what we do with that. And some studies are undertaken whether it can increase the risk of obesity or type 2 diabetes. But it's all over the place. I mean, if you just take the time to look into food, high fructose corn syrup is hidden everywhere. And now let's look at the actions of dietary fiber. It adds bulk to food, absorbs water, and increases bowel motility. And we have here recommended intake, 25 to 30 grams per day. And we have the soluble fiber, and we have insoluble fiber. So the soluble fiber is resistant to human digestion. We cannot, it is fiber, so we cannot digest it, but is fermented by bacteria in the large intestine and it delays gastric emptying and gives the sensation of fullness. So soluble fiber that you find in apples, for example, are very good to make you feel full and uh, they are fermented by bacteria in, in the large intestine. Insoluble fiber passes mostly through without uh, largely intact. But fiber in general, as I said, it adds bulk to food, absorbs water, and increases bowel motility. Now, if you have too much fiber, it can interfere with vitamin and mineral uptake, if you have too much of it. 
All right, now let's go, what's the medical importance of dietary proteins? And we have amino acids that are used by many cells for protein synthesis and other functions. Now if we talk about amino acids, we should talk about dietary essential amino acids. And milk, eggs, and soybeans, they have a perfect score regarding dietary essential amino acids. And that is then followed by meats. So milk, it's not here, eggs, and soybean, and meats. Now, we want the amino acids, but if we have too much of red meat, we, that can, ha can have a lot of purines, and they are degraded to uric acid, and that can lead to a gout attack. So one should keep the, the diet low in red meat, not too much red meat in the diet for that reason. Now we come to the dietary essential amino acids, and you see here I said in adults, it's lysine, branched-chain amino acids, threonine, tryptophan. Have you talked about these amino acids already? Were they presented to you as dietary essential? Okay. What I want to say is that we have nine or ten that are dietary essential for adults, and children and pregnant women have a high rate of protein synthesis and they need additional dietary amino acids. And definitely arginine and histidine are need in higher amounts than in adults. And if, we, if I see you next semester and we talk about infant nutrition, then we have a whole new chart of amino acids that are essential for them as they have such a high turnover that they need more from the diet than they can synthesize. Even if, they are, if you can synthesize them in the body, they need so much that they have a higher demand to eat them. Other amino acids are needed, as I said, for growth and positive nitrogen balance in neonates and infants. Positive nitrogen balance, what does that mean? I eat more nitrogen than I release. And I use the nitrogen to make muscle, muscle growth. Nitrogen is found in amino acids. So I take a lot of protein in from the diet, and instead of having a turnover and release it in the urine, I synthesize muscle. So just from that viewpoint, if you ever see a question with a child, healthy child, always has positive nitrogen balance. Pregnant woman, positive nitrogen balance. Yeah? Once we put the, nit the amino acids into growth, muscle growth, we have positive nitrogen balance. Now we have a relative quality of some common dietary proteins, and here you have animal source in eggs and in milk. You have a perfect uh, value of one. In beef, poultry, and fish gets a little bit better. You are not that high, but you are high. And in plant proteins, the soybean protein is perfect. Then we have other kidney beans, whole wheat bread, you see. Then 
the um, uh, protein composition is not that possible, uh, that good anymore. Now, if you have, if you look at the dietary essential amino acids, when you want to synthesize uh, muscle or proteins in general, you need all of them. And if you have too much of one kind, that is not good. And you see here the amount of essential amino acids in beans, in dark green, it's lysine. And what is lacking is methionine and cysteine. They have both. Cysteine has a sulfhydryl group. Methionine has a sulfur with a methyl group. So here you see it's lacking methionine. But if you look at wheat, they have more methionine than lysine. And if you eat this together, then you are coming closer to a perfect part. So if, if you have an, a patient that is vegetarian and you are concerned about the dietary essential amino acids, it will not go well and say, oh, eat some meat, or might not even drink milk or eat eggs. But here in the food, in beans and wheat, if you mix it, but the key is that you eat it together. And actually what you see in, uh, if you look at uh, the food composition in many, many uh, uh, areas, it's a nice mix, mung bean and rice, yeah, as an example. So the food is already together there. There's a lot of knowledge over thousands of years what works good and what doesn't work good if you look into what people are eating. All right, another quick clicker question. All right, please cast your vote. And the winner is Methionine. Yes. All right, I hope you are all right with that. And if you ever have questions to those clicker questions, just email me, I will answer. Now we come to something that I already mentioned, positive nitrogen balance, it's always coming into attention, human nitrogen intake. And we mostly eat the nitrogen in form of dietary proteins. And we can calculate the nitrogen or we can measure the nitrogen. 
So when we have proteins, they contain about one gram of nitrogen per 6.25 grams of protein. That is a thought that is used, and, and we use that in our um, calculations. Nitrogen is about 16% of most proteins. So here I can say the nitrogen intake is a protein intake in grams divided by 6.25. I can also directly measure the nitrogen, but it is easier if I make studies to calculate the grams of the protein. Now the output is in urine, mostly in the form of urea, and we describe it as urinary urea nitrogen, UUN, and we measure that in the urine. And other sources of nitrogens are from this sweat, skin, and feces. And that we are not measuring, we estimate it. And we say it's about four grams per day. So you see the whole thing is a lot of estimations in there, but it works out quite well for what you want to know as a physician. You want to know, is this patient in nitrogen balance, which we are normally as adults, is this patient in positive nitrogen balance? Mostly you see it as it's a child and, and growing. Or is this patient in negative uh, nitrogen balance? And that is very often in, uh, as in trauma situations. So nitrogen output is UUN plus 4 grams. And now you have the calculation of the nitrogen balance. This is determined the nitrogen balance for 24 hours. Your nitrogen balance is the intake minus the output. And that can vary by about two grams. So the nitrogen balance, the protein intake in grams divided by 6.25 minus UUN plus four grams. Or if I measure the nitrogen, then I have the protein, nitrogen intake minus UNN plus 4 grams. The nitrogen is mostly in balance in most of healthy adults. The tissue protein synthesis is like the tissue protein breakdown. And nitrogen is in healthy individuals mostly released as urinary urea nitrogen. Now, positive nitrogen balance, larger than two grams, nitrogen intake is higher than nitrogen excretion. And this nitrogen is used to, for tissue protein synthesis. And we have tissue growth, like in childhood, pregnancy, or recovery from emaciating illness. When you are recovering, you are synthesizing muscle. It's not acute illness. That's not while you are still in trauma. That is afterwards when you recover and you build muscle. Negative nitrogen balance is the loss is greater than the nitrogen intake. And you have increased catabolism of tissue protein, increased muscle degradation. And a negative nitrogen balance could also be that you don't have adequate dietary protein, that you don't get the protein that you should have, or you can have a lack of dietary essential amino acids, or 
you see negative nitrogen balance and physiologic stress like trauma, burns, illness, or surgery. That is quite common in your patients. Once they go through surgery, they lose muscle mass, not only as they are not running around, but they are just degrading uh, muscle. So here again, adult healthy normal balance. Nitrogen in equals about nitrogen out. You have a turnover of proteins, of course, but you're also synthesizing and degrading in the same amount. Positive nitrogen balance when you have tissue growth. You take more nitrogen in than you put out as you use that nitrogen to synthesize proteins. You use it for tissue growth and especially in childhood pregnancy. And negative nitrogen balance, you either have a lack of dietary protein or lack of dietary essential amino acids, or you have physiological stress and you are degrading muscle more than you should. Is that have an idea about that? Nitrogen balance for you as a physician, always important. That now, when we look at food, we are very much interested in trying to see what happens and if people are overweight and underweight, we will talk about it too. So we have a short-term signals that influences appetite and satiety. And these two uh, hormones are counteracting ghrelin is a peptide hormone uh, produced in the stomach and fasting. It's a funny name, and I remember it the best when I said, my stomach grumbles, ghrelin is released. Yeah, and you, you can hear that if you have, uh, if you want to lock it into that. Sometimes it is good to lock for the memory, as you have to learn it like vocabulary, uh, these names to something that you can remember, that you can relate to. And very often a grumbling stomach happens when, when the stomach is empty and it stimulates appetite, ghrelin, and it drives the hunger and food intake. The other case hormone is cholecystokinin. We will talk about that next semester. Cholecystokinin is a funny name, but it is a, a hormone that leads to the contraction of the gallbladder. Coli, gall, cysto, kynin, moving. So that's where it has its name. It, it is uh, leading to digestion. And at the same time when it is there, it stimulates satiety. So these are the two fast, short-term signals that counteract each other. And the long-term signals, and especially leptin, is important now in, in research, and there's more coming, coming your way. Leptin is a peptide hormone produced by adipose tissue. That's what you have to know here at this level. So it's a peptide hormone produced by adipose tissue, and it is secreted in proportion to the size of the fat stores and it decreases appetite and increases energy expenditure. And insulin, you know, is a peptide hormone produced by the beta cells of pancreas. These are long-term signals. 
and leptin and insulin actions on the hypothalamus here decrease the appetite. Some individuals are leptin resistant. So no matter how many fat cells release the leptin, it doesn't do its job. So big area of research related to overweight and obesity. Now, on the other part of the coin, we have also protein energy malnutrition. We call this PEM or PEU, protein energy undernutrition. And they have all varieties of clinical conditions. You will very likely see PEM mostly in patients with medical conditions, and they can have decreased appetites or altered digestion and absorption and you find it in hospitalized patients with major trauma, depressed immune system, infection, chronic diseases, and the treatment requires intravenous fluids and total parenteral nutrition. In the elderly, you can see it too, and it can result from metabolic changes of food digestion, but it can also result from less food intake due to depression. It's very, very common, especially in the elderly that are in um, institutions where they are losing their appetite and are heavily in depression. So there you can also have protein energy malnutrition. In children, it is a very serious worldwide problem, and here it results from inadequate provision of food. And we are going now in the two extreme forms. One is core, and one is marasmus. The child with core has this plump belly very often. And marasmus, you see, it's a totally loss of fat and muscle. Now let's just shortly say, what is core? It's a strange name. But it is strange, uh, the name I, I think comes from Nigeria, and it means the disease of the displaced child. And what that means is that a child with kwashiorkor, before it became, uh, had the condition of kwashiorkor, was uh, breastfed by the mother. And then the second child comes, and this child gets now less proteins in the diet as the newborn gets the milk and the child can have adequate uh, calories intake but not enough protein. So that can happen in this. And the deficiency of dietary protein and dietary essential amino acids uh, are seen and it leads to a decrease in blood albumin, less than 2.8 grams and what is even more, and that's where we are going into the direction, these children have very often uh, infections. And then we have what we call acute phase protein, or uh, acute phase response of the liver, so that the liver does not synthesize a lot of albumin anymore and saves the amino acids for blood clotting factors and other serum proteins. So we find edema in the abdomen and in the legs. So what is marasmus? 
Marasmus is due to severe undernutrition and you have a deficiency of all carbohydrates, lipids, proteins, and other nutrients. But marasmus can also result from other diseases, trauma, anorexia, and it can be found in the elderly. So you see it's a big overlap, and when you are in the hospital, you see all the varieties of that. These quashiocor and marasmus are the two extreme forms. And again, very uh, uh, health problem for the whole world, as in the children. Marasmus, the typical symptoms have arrested growth in these children. They are smaller. You have anemia, extreme tissue and muscle wasting, loss of subcutaneous fat. We call this emaciation. And loss, loose skin folds hanging over buttocks and thighs. Let's just go back and look at the comparison here. The quashiocor uh, child has about the same height. Marasmus child has stunted growth. And you see a, a decrease in subcutaneous fat and loose skin and prominent bones. And here in quashiocor, the uh, poor wound healing, the belly that uh, plump belly and edema in the legs. If we have undernutrition, that leads to diseases. And you see 20% of these children are, they can have pneumonia and, or diarrhea. And these are the death to attributable undernutrition from pneumonia, from diarrhea, from malaria, and so forth. So here again, more and more it comes into the uh, alertness that food has a big influence on diseases. Now, if I want to know something about nutritional status of um, an, indi an individual, I can measure the body mass index that is the weight in kilograms divided by height in meters to square. Now here you see already a nice chart. And guess who makes those charts? Health insurances. So that's how it is very easy for individuals to find out, am I underweight, I'm in a healthy range, overweight, and obese individual, BMI larger than 30. And the health insurances raise their rates dramatically when you are in that area. So just here to see you can go into these charts. And you can also go into the internet and plug in your data and they calculate it. This is very vague. I mean, you don't even know, is it now for a man or a woman or... Uh, what is the age groups, but you can have it calculated on the internet. They tell you exactly whether you should lose a little bit weight or whether you should gain a little bit weight as underweight individuals is also not healthy. If I estimate body muscle mass versus adipose tissues, I can have the triceps skin fold, and you have here this machine that measures the thickness and estimates the body fat stores 
normally the body fat is located in the subcutaneous region. Or here what is done, especially in, in countries where we have uh, child malnutrition, you measure the mid-arm muscle circumference and you estimate the skeletal muscle mass. Then people come to the great idea to have a bioelectric impedance analysis. And you step on this uh, balance and you get a low, they say very safe, electric current through your body. And then you can measure your body fat. You can read how much body fat you have. And last but not least, the DEXA scan, mostly we use it for bone density, but you can also use this for measuring body fat. There are anatomic differences in fat disposition and fat deposition. The peer shape presents with a much lower risk of metabolic disease. And you have here the apple shape and the peer shape. Now here you see it uh, in men or uh, women that these shapes can happen. You can have an apple shape in a woman or a pear shape in a man. That is just a very, I don't know why they did it, but that's how it is. So it, is, it deals with a waist to hip ratio. If it is below 0.8 for women on uh, larger 0.8 for women and larger one for men, then we define it as android apple-shaped. And we have upper uh, body obesity, more fat deposition in the trunk. This is not very good. This is highly related to cardiovascular problems. Here, if you have the peer-shaped body, then you have also, again, waist-to-hip ratio, if it is smaller, 0.8 for women, and smaller than 1 for men, then it is shown as a gynoid, peer-shaped uh, type. And we have lower body obesity, and we have here more fat deposits in the hips and thighs. That can actually even be an advantage. If you look at the differences in abdominal fat deposition, you can have it under your skin, subcutaneous fat depots. That's majority of the fat stored just under the skin. And it can be the, in the upper abdominal or gluteofemoral region of the human body. Now, what is more in concern is visceral fat depots. That's only 10 to 20% of the body fat. And you have... Uh, it's located in the abdominal cavity in close association with the digestive tract. That is of big concern. Excess fat stores definitely increases health risk associated with obesity. Now, what are the biochemical indicators of the nutritional status? Well, we use serum proteins to assess nutritional status. It's easy, you draw blood, it's not that in, uh, intervening into, uh, or, or muscle biopsy or so, you just draw the blood. And then you measure the amount of albumin. And albumin is synthesized by the liver for about, with about 14 grams every day. 
and a healthy adult. And now if you don't get enough protein from the diet, then the liver will think about it and say, why? I can make 12 grams and I'm still fine. There's still no edema at that. It just reduces some and does something else with the amino acid, synthesizes other uh, serum proteins. And if you now have a low level of albumin, then you, that is very indicating that there is a protein deficiency in the diet or could be a dietary protein deficiency in the, if the individual normally is healthy. An increased level of serum-free fatty acids can in, indicate insulin resistance. So you have some, you, you measure blood data and the lab results can be a hint. Now, then you have to, if you want to assess vitamin and mineral status, then you use laboratory tests to confirm my, my uh, deficiencies. So, for example, you see abnormal metabolism of hair, nails, skin, eyes, bones, joints, and so forth. That is a hint that there is a vitamin or mineral deficiency, and then you investigate that further. But as a physician, it's always first look at the patient and then order your test. And here is what we should a healthy eating plate, you have to have healthy oils, you should eat more veggies, plenty fruits of all colors. When we talk about next semester, we see that uh, these colored fruits have molecules that are radical scavengers. And here I want to point that out, the water is a nutrient. Although we don't get calories from it. It is a nutrient is meant has to be in the diet or you are deficient. So a sedentary adult should drink 1.5 to 2 liters water daily. People battle about it and say it's too much. Others say it's too little. But drink your water. And now we have the last clicker question for today.
<laughs> Thank you so very much. But I can understand you're ready to go out of here. Have a nice evening.